This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can catch new episodes every Thursday, so just tap or click subscribe and keep updated. This week we're concluding our two-part mini-series on the Wars of the Roses, as we chart the role of Richard III in the final phases of the conflicts. Richard remains one of the most controversial kings in English history, accused of murdering his nephews to protect his throne. But who was the real Richard III? What was his character and career? How was his grave discovered under a council car park in Leicester in 2012? And why, over 500 years since his death, are people still reassessing his story? To answer these questions and more, we're joined now by curator of collections and interiors, Dickon Whitewood. Hello. So let's start, Dickon, by quickly recapping where we got up to in the story of the Wars of the Roses previously, as we set the scene for Richard's arrival. We concluded episode 152 with the Lancastrian king Henry VI deposed and in exile in Scotland, and his very capable queen, Margaret of Anjou, in France. On the throne at this point was the Yorkist king, Edward IV. So how long did he stay in power? Well, as we've heard, during the sort of mid-1460s, there were two English kings at liberty. So you had Edward IV reigning as king over most of the kingdom, but Henry still in the northeast. However, his hopes of regaining the throne were crushed at the uh, Battle of Hexham, after which he, he went on the run, but was eventually captured in Lancashire in 1464, which should have put the, the Yorkists in the, in, the, in the ascendancy, and indeed they were for a while. But from the mid-1460s, the relationship between Edward IV and his principal supporter, the Earl of Warwick, began to sour. And the most important feature of this was Edward's marriage, initially in secret, to Elizabeth Woodville, who was a great beauty, but it was problematic because Warwick was personally humiliated by this wedding as he had had a very pro-French policy and actually had gone to France in the aim of securing a marriage alliance between the French crown and Edward. And obviously this, this secret marriage put his nose out for that reason. But also Elizabeth Woodville had many brothers and also children from her previous marriage. And naturally she was still loyal to her family and therefore tried, as the years progressed, to gain them positions of favour within the Yorkist court of Edward IV. And this directly threatened Warwick's position as sort of right-hand man to the king. So these relationships eventually, the fact that the relationship between Warwick and Edward IV broke down, eventually led to another bout in the Wars of the Roses. So how many more battles took place during Edward's reign? Because it was quite short, wasn't it? Edward had two sort of main periods of his reign, from the Battle of Taunton in 1461 to sort of 1470, and reigned again after that to 1483. But the first period of his reign finished in 1469, when Warwick and George Duke of Clarence rebelled. And there was a series of rebellions but in the end, Edward IV and Richard, you know, same Richard that would become Richard III, were actually forced to flee to Burgundy for a period. 
When they came back, however, the most significant battles were, first of all, Barnet, which happened in April 1471, and finished with the death of Warwick on the battlefield. And then Tewkesbury in May, just a few weeks after that, which was a complete Yorkist victory. Edward IV and Richard both fought on the battlefield. And probably most significantly, Edward of Lancaster, the Prince of Wales and son of Henry VI, was killed probably just shortly after the battle. There's there's conflicting stories, but he was probably captured after the battle. And obviously this took really the fight out of the main Lancastrian cause because the future of the Lancastrian house had been killed. Had been cut down, effectively. Exactly, yeah. Destroying the air, really, at the source. Exactly. And there are really colourful stories about how this happened. In some accounts, he was killed by George Duke of Clarence on the battlefield. In another account, he was actually brought into Edward IV's presence and was killed in person by George, Duke of Clarence, and Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who, again, Richard III, in person after he denied Edward IV's right to the throne. So there are conflicting accounts, but the end result is the same, that Edward of Lancaster died and, yes, the Lancastrian heir was cut down. How many years have sort of passed then between the end of our last episode and the start of now, and obviously Edward currently being the King of England? Edward became king in 1461, and those struggles that we heard about in the last episode took place between then and about 1464. And then the breakdown between Warwick and Edward IV wasn't immediate. I mean, there was a whole series of steps, so that by the end of the decade, in 1469, 1470, those relationships had soured to such a degree. So it was was almost a period of 10 years, Edward IV's first reign, before Barnet and Tewkesbury that we've just talked about. And when when was Barnet and Tewkesbury those battles? Well, they both took place in 1471, only a few weeks apart. The Battle of Barnet, just north of London, took place in April, and then Tewkesbury, just above Gloucester in the West Country, a few weeks later in May. In terms of the Wars of the Roses, that's actually quite a chunk of time, isn't it? Because the whole thing actually lasts, what, three decades? It does, but then other than the period we learnt about in the last episode where there are castles being fought over, most of the fighting in the Wars of the Roses is covered in only a matter of weeks, but there are a whole series of political processes and alliances and that take place over much greater amounts of time. Now, obviously, we've just talked about the fact that um, the heir to the House of Lancaster has been killed on the battlefield at Tewkesbury. There is a point in our story where Henry VI himself, who is not on the throne, dies. So when does that happen? Well, while his son, Edward of Lancaster, is alive, even though Henry VI is in Yorkist custody and is taken to the Tower of London, there is no sense in killing him because if the Yorkists were to have killed him earlier, then Edward of Lancaster would have just still been there to attract Lancastrian sympathies. However, after Tewkesbury, of course, the heir is dead, and now Henry alone is alive. And so he's now become a major inconvenience. So we're told that as Edward IV rides back to London after the Battle of Tewkesbury, Henry is dispatched, is killed in the Tower of London. Now, according to Yorkist propaganda, he died of grief at the death of his son. Although Thomas More, the famous Tudor historian, says rather salaciously that it was actually Richard, 
Duke of Gloucester to be Richard III, who committed the deed with his own hand. We'll never know, but what is certain is that Henry VI died in the Tower of London shortly following the Battle of Tewkesbury, and almost certainly Edward IV gave that order and has to take ultimate responsibility for the deed. By tradition, he was killed while at prayer. We know he was a very pious individual, quite naive in his outlook. And obviously the fact that his son was killed shortly before, you know, he was killed almost certainly violently. You know, it's quite a sad end for a king who, although not a good king, was a good man. Yes, and he was propped up by his wife as well. Now, with Henry's heir gone, Henry himself gone, what was the fate of Margaret of Anjou, his very capable queen? She had travelled to England with her son, Edward of Lancaster, shortly before the Battle of Barnet and Tewkesbury. And being a woman, she couldn't take place in the battles, So, but she was nearby. She was captured by Edward IV shortly after the battle and imprisoned, first at Wallingford Castle and then the Tower of London. Which is obviously very sad circumstances for her that uh, you know she would have been aware of the fate of her son and um, would have shortly known about the fate of her husband Henry VI. She was then placed in the custody of Alice Chaucer, Duchess of Suffolk, who had previously been her lady in waiting. So you know it's possible that she received some sympathy there, but she had nothing to fight for anymore. You know her husband and son had both been killed. And she was eventually ransomed by Louis XI, who was her relative. He was King of France in 1475, after which she sort of disappears from English politics altogether, really. So Louis actually paid to take her away out of English hands, effectively. Yes, but by this time, she wasn't a threat to Edward IV. And so he was more than happy for her to go. She wasn't treated particularly badly. It's just she had no use as a political prisoner. So when Louis XI, who was her relative, paid money for her release, Edward IV was happy for her to go. How long did Edward then enjoy on the throne before things start to change and we bring Richard into the story again? After this period and the two battles we've mentioned, Edward reigned pretty much completely securely until 1483. So there's another period, just over a decade long, where Edward is safe and secure on the throne. But obviously, when it comes to battles or health, life expectancy in the 15th century is not always the best. So how long did Edward last? So Edward IV died in April 1483. He certainly wasn't an old man. We're not exactly sure exactly what he died of but we know he certainly enjoyed his lifestyle as king ate too much drank too much even involved himself in what some of some enemies characterized as debaucheries so didn't live a particularly healthy lifestyle so died young by this stage though he had secured or so he thought his inheritance because he had two sons edward prince of wales who in 1483 was 12 years old, and Richard, Duke of York, who was his second son, the Spare, was 10. And of course, in 1483, when Edward IV dies, Edward, the Prince of Wales, known now as Edward V, was his heir and should and was expected to have become king and had his own reign. But of course, that's when Richard III really, and and the story really uh, becomes well known to history. 
So let's talk a bit more about how Richard comes into the frame and talk about his youth. Now, he did really have an appetite for power. He was the brother of the previous king, Edward IV. Were they close? It's difficult to say. I mean, personal affections and opinions are always difficult to piece together from such a large span of history. What we can say, though, is in Richard's youth, his relationship with Edward was probably quite distant because Edward was a full 10 years older and Edward was the first son of Richard, Duke of York. Richard was only the fourth. So there was quite both an age gap and a very large difference in importance. You know, Richard was a completely spare son and probably destined for a career in the church. What transformed the relationship, though, was when Edward became king and suddenly Richard became a royal prince, which, of course, completely transformed his importance, both personally and you know nationally. So at that stage, he was granted honours and lands. He was made Duke of Gloucester after Edward's coronation and Admiral of England. And at this stage, one of their other brothers has also, had also died. So that you know, made Richard even more important as he was now... Moving up the pecking order. Yeah, exactly. Because when Edward IV came to the throne, he didn't have a wife. He didn't have sons of his own. And so if, if Edward was to die, first of all, the crown would go to George, Duke of Clarence, and then after that, Richard. So all of a sudden, he's now third in line to the throne, which completely transformed his position in the kingdom. He can smell the power. Yeah, certainly that elevation. Richard, even though at this stage, a, you know, a young boy, he would have been very aware of it. I mean, in fact, when Edward IV came to the throne, Richard and his brother George were in Burgundy, where they'd been sent by their mother for their own safety. And as soon as Edward IV comes to the throne, they are immediately treated with greater honour where they're staying in Burgundy, because, of course, all of their importance has suddenly overnight changed. Rather than the fourth son of a duke, he's all of a sudden the brother of a king, which is a big elevation. Do we know much more about Richard's upbringing then, apart from this time in Burgundy and this sort of distance in time between him and his elder brother, Edward? Well, we know he was born in October 1452 at Fotheringhay. And we know this because Richard actually entered the date in his own book of hours later in his life. He actually recorded that date. But other than that, his early childhood, we know very little in terms of fact, because again, you know, at this stage, as I said, he's the fourth son of a duke and therefore is, you know, is not important in terms of the politics at a national level. He probably spent uh, his early youth with his brother Clarence and his two elder sisters travelling around his father's castles and lands at Fotheringay and Ludlow. Clare and Baynard's Castle in London. A chance mention, though, of Richard at a young age simply says that Richard lives yet, which may be interpreted that actually he was a sickly child. It's certainly possible, Mm. although, of course, infant mortality was so high that we might be reading too much into that line if we we think that it actually um, means he was unwell. Do you think that's a possible reference to his later scoliosis, this curvature of the spine, which was discovered? It could be, but scoliosis normally develops later. But what, what we do know, though, is, is Richard, from his skeletal remains, was quite slight. He took after, apparently in looks like, like his father, 
who was not mentioned is not mentioned in the accounts as being a large man. So it's potentially he was just a slightly small child, rather than a sort of six foot giant that Edward the Fourth, his older brother, turned into. But other than that, we know that Richard grew up in extremely turbulent times during the Wars of the Roses. He was at Ludlow when the Battle of Ludford Bridge took place and the Lancastrians came in and sacked Ludlow where he was. Um, He was then sent by his mother to Burgundy after the death of his father. So certainly not an easy childhood. I mean, he witnessed deaths of lots of his family members. There was uncertainty. He was being sent away. Probably he had an idea of what was happening, but not clear in his own mind. So it's certainly not the childhood that you'd wish upon a a young child. Yes, because he sort of grows up with the Wars of the Roses being normal. It's just a part of life, I suppose. He's born into political disorder and kind of chaos, really. I mean, yes, definitely is. And I mean, it's possible to speculate on the effects that this may have had on him in later adulthood. Just expect the unexpected, I suppose. Richard certainly knew the dangers of the battlefield. He knew that personally from the deaths of his family members. And then later in life, you know, he, before Bosworth, which you'll come to, you know, he was very aware at that stage. And indeed, in his younger life, when he went on campaign, that early death was certainly a possibility, but that through his own agency and ability in acquiring lands and power, he could transform his life and to an extent, make his own way and shape his own fortune. Is Richard connected to any English heritage sites during this early period of his life and adolescence and early 20s? Uh, He is, yes. From the age of 13 or or thereabouts, he was moved into the custody of the Earl of Warwick. So this is when the Earl of Warwick and Edward IV are still on cordial terms. This is because it was common for young noblemen to be raised in the household of other noble lords where they would learn etiquette and how to be a lord themselves, as well as the sort of chivalric and knightly pursuits and, and how to fight. And Warwick's estates were sort of centred on mainly in the, the northeast and the Midlands. So Warwick Castle in the Midlands. But then in terms of English heritage sites, we've got particularly Midland Castle. It's often said to be Richard's childhood home. Now, that picture of him, Richard, having a home has to be sort of tempered by the fact that we know that Richard probably moved about in his early childhood, both with the Earl of Warwick, but also among the Earl of Warwick's own castles and estates. So he likely did spend time at Middleham Castle, but he also almost certainly spent time at Sheriff Hutton Castle nearby, at Warwick Castle, and indeed just moving about the country. Bearing all that in mind then, Richard is obviously seeing the political situation develop and change. So when his brother his elder brother Edward IV, takes the crown. He must see that his brother's reign is not stable, that relationships with key insiders might change. So I'm just trying to understand if Richard is maybe seeing the political landscape be quite a changeable one. I think we've got to split Edward IV's reign into the sort of two halves. So in the first half, prior to Barnet and Tewkesbury, Richard was obviously quite young. So his involvement and awareness of national events probably came second to his tuition. However, you know, he was in the household of Warwick, so he must have heard about 
the disagreements between Warwick and the king. And it's interesting that despite growing up in the in the Neville household of the Earl of Warwick, he definitely sided with his elder brother Edward IV in their disputes, which is, is simply an interesting factor that despite growing up in, in that household, he chose consciously to remain loyal to his brother. And then in the second reign of Edward IV, sort of after 1471, this was when Richard had actually attained his majority as an adult and was in a position to shape the stability of Edward IV's reign rather than simply being swept up in the events dictated by his elders. That's very interesting. So he starts off loyal to his brother and then he realises that he's got a little bit of a whiff of power and he can start to influence in a more meaningful way. That's very interesting, I think, within the broad interpretation of how we look at Richard III and his rise to power. I think that's a really interesting fact. Yes, I mean, the degree to which he was faithful to Edward IV is interesting. He leaves Warwick's household in 1468 and travels with Edward, and Edward gives him rewards. So he gives him lands that belong to the Duchy of Lancaster, which is within Edward IV's control. And Richard begins to sort of engage in regional politics of his own. So he, he takes a side of the Harrington family in a sort of local dispute against the Stanleys and sort of doing other local things which you know, show signs of him sort of developing as an adult. Mediation and representation of the king, effectively. Yes, and for, you know he replaces William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, who has been killed at an earlier battle, as the king's right-hand man in Wales. Now, immediately after this, Warwick and Clarence invade England, and that's when Edward and Richard flee together to the Low Countries. And I think Richard, at this stage, he sees his star as very much connected to Edward's. You've got to remember that he is not the next in line to the throne. At this stage, it's his elder brother, George, who is Edward's heir. Richard had nothing to gain, personally, by being disloyal to Edward, because it's unlikely that in the new regime, so to speak, he would have gained anything. So he had lots to gain by remaining loyal to Edward IV, and therefore decided to flee with Edward. He shared in Edward IV's hardships in exile in the Low Countries. Although I suppose we've got to qualify being you know, shared in Edward's hardships. Edward, Edward was still treated with honour, even in exile. And then, of course, Richard fights for Edward IV at the two battles mentioned at Barnet and Tewkesbury. He commands a wing of the army and is injured in battle, particularly at Barnet, and loses, indeed, some of his closest friends in battle. So because of that loyalty, he is then consciously rewarded. Yes, and I don't want to put thoughts into the late Richard's head, but perhaps if I were him at the time, I might think, well, I've survived these major battles and I've supported my brother. So clearly supporting my brother is uh, allowing God to protect me. I'm just speculating. No, um, I mean, very likely. I mean, we are the Middle Ages are extremely religious age. mm. Almost everyone is baptised. Everyone is Catholic, regular churchgoers. And the thought processes of everyday life and everyday people revolves around religious sort of thinking. And so it's almost certain that when Edward IV wins those battles at Barnet and Tewkesbury, they see that as God's favour. And to his own extent, Richard would have seen that, you know, his own success at those battles, living through those battles, and then being part of his um, brother's 
army as divinely ordained for sure you know, almost certainly yes i think that's a really interesting point and, and another one as we slowly start to sort of knit together this picture of how richard is developing and getting closer and closer to power but away from the battlefield what was his love life like did he marry he did yes so he gets married to anne who is the daughter of the earl of warwick and his wife anne beecham now she's a few years younger than richard she was born in 1456 he was born in 1452 but they probably knew each other at an early age obviously we we just talked about how richard was part of warwick's household so he almost certainly knew anne from that time and was introduced to her and so it's possible it was a love match but there is also the political side that she was a co-heiress to the Warwick estates. So after the victories at Barnet and Tewkesbury, he'd already been granted Middleham, Sheriff Hutton and Penrith and some of the Warwick lands. It was also been made chief steward of the Duchy of Lancaster in the north, given great offices of state. But the marriage with Anne also solidified that power because it then it gave him an additional power base and right to the lands that Anne brought with her through the marriage. There was a complication, though, in that Anne had an elder sister, Isabel, who was married to his brother, George, Duke of Clarence. And so the two brothers had to share that inheritance. And initially, uh-huh. Clarence had wanted that for himself. Um, it was obviously this great accumulation of lands and titles and properties. And obviously, through his marriage to Isabel at that time, he'd gained them all for himself. And so we're told that Clarence wanted to make sure that Anne never married and indeed hid her, apparently, in one story as a kitchen maid in order to disguise her from being found. But Richard saw through this and Anne actually you know, wanted the marriage as well because that you know, obviously secured her future. So there was a complication and a That's some really rivalry between those brothers, but, so, but <laughs> it ended in them sharing this hugely powerful, hugely wealthy Warwick inheritance. Let's talk a bit more about um, Richard's personality. He was effectively the understudy to his elder brother, Edward IV. How does he compare in terms of leadership and affairs of states? You mentioned a bit about him mediating and representing his brother on occasion. Um, Were there any other things that he did? Yes. Edward IV himself was a warrior. I've mentioned how he was over six foot, which was a giant at the time, whereas Richard was quite slight. However, Richard definitely saw himself as a knight as well. He, you know, he'd, lived, he'd lived through battles, he'd commanded men in battle, and so he certainly saw himself as a military man. And in the 1470s, when he'd attained his adulthood and began to administer lands himself, he definitely developed that. You know, He was a good strategist, and later on in the 1480s, he led a war against Scotland, which was successful. But he also had excellent administrative abilities, and showed concern for good government. This was to be one of his main criticisms of Edward IV in his own propaganda when Richard III took the throne, that Edward hadn't shown due concern for these factors. So these were sort of good sides to his personality, but also sides which were not common to him, but were shared by other members of the nobility, but were perhaps not as positive. So, I mean, he was incredibly determined, often to the point of ruthlessness. So at one stage, he was very harsh in his dealings towards one of the, mem- of the De Vere family who had been rebels against Edward IV and 
he claimed the lands of the countess and was very harsh in his dealings with her in the aim of getting hold of, of her lands. He also similarly was very hard in his dealings in terms of the Warwick inheritance, certainly uh, in 1478 when Clarence was actually executed for treason. Richard agreed to that based on the deal that he was to get sort of the honour and castle of Richmond in return. So he knew how to gain a hard wow. bargain. And we see some of this sort of this in his sort of the legal mind that he, he developed as well. So he had a, a cartulary, which is a sort of a, a collection of documents, and he meticulously added sort of grants from the king and titles to land within this cartulary, which I think tends to suggest that he was keeping very close tabs on what he's been granted so that in any uh, dispute in the future, he could produce this document which gave exactly his right to the lands, which sort of shows that he was, he wasn't, he was, you know, there was a brain, you know, a distinct brain there as well, um, yes. as well as his sort of military capabilities. Yes, an administrator, a fighter, but also someone who's very much got an eye on the future and on his portfolio, shall we say, yes, and an, an opportunist. Yes, you, you had to be. I mean, power, political power at this stage was built upon the ownership of land because land provided wealth. Wealth allowed you to fee members of your affinity. So other members of the gentry and other nobility, you could give money to them in return for their service and support. So Richard's concern for his own estates and his own titles to land was all wrapped up in his ability to project power, but also the, you know, the actual reality of power. And that's why it was clearly a major concern for him. And some, on occasion, Edward IV um, took away gifts of or titles of land. But despite that, Richard put his original deed, his original grant in his cartulary, probably because he, although they may have been taken away, he probably aspired to gain them back at another time. Mm. We'll talk about some of the physical aspects of Richard a little bit later because I think we probably need to just establish some of the other points about his ability to acquire power, wealth and influence first and he does so particularly in the north of England and he's also given the titles Duke of Gloucester. So how else is Richard acquiring power, wealth and influence during his rise One of the factors through his marriage to Anne and Neville was that he gained the Warwick affinity. So when I say the Warwick affinity, I mean all of the lesser gentry and nobles that were in the service of the Earl of Warwick. So they naturally now transferred a lot of their allegiance to Richard as the husband of Warwick's heir. And that was particularly the case in the north of England because Richard was given Warwick's estates in the north and spent a lot of time there. So naturally, a lot of these lesser lords, so the Scroops of Bolton and Masham, the Fitzhughes, Ravensworth, themselves, or major regional powers, suddenly were drawn into Richard's orbit when were able to be rewarded by him for that service. And even major lords in the north, such as Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland, recognised that Richard, as a royal duke, now largely based in the north, was now the main power. So even the Earl of Northumberland signed, as it were, into Richard's service. And additionally to that, Richard was quite astute in recognising that he had the ability to build a regional power 
the sort of area of land which he could come to exercise control over in sort of Edward IV's name. And so what he started to do is trade estates. So some of the estates he'd been given through his marriage that were in the Midlands around Warwick, he actually traded for similar estates, but in the north. So he did that, for example, he traded for and gained Skipton Castle and Scarborough Castle. So that really cemented his position in the north. And all this came together, um, which I briefly mentioned, the war with Scotland in 1480-3, where Richard was put in charge of a royal army, which was mainly made up of northern nobility. And Richard, being in this position of being in charge, was able to raise knights, so he he would dub knights. He raised others to the position of banneret, which is sort of a stage above a knight, and then was successful in that war. He led the army into Scotland as far as Edinburgh, where he so the English army was actually stationed in Edinburgh for a while, and he retakes Berwick upon Tweed, which is a really really important border fortress. So that success in the war, which of course is the fundamental thing which which marks the success of a nobleman at this period coupled with pulling local members into his orbit and solidifying his land interests in the north all combine to make richard really the power in the kingdom in the north that held that region together for his brother edward the fourth that's very interesting because he's consolidating and really cementing his power in a regional way but that if anything happens to his brother gives him this sort of real sense that he could be the incumbent. I think so, especially because the war with Scotland, it doesn't end so much, but it's it's certainly concludes in England's favour with the capture of Berwick in 1483. And this is a major personal triumph for Richard, who has gained this significant reputation as a leader of men in war beating Scotland is one of the things that you know English love to do the most and he's successful in that and not only that he also gains a palatinate status in Cumberland which gives him in this particular area almost royal dignity and powers so he's he is certainly in 1483 on the death of Edward IV a you know extremely powerful person and in a man that has to be taken into account by everybody else. So, Dickon, out of all of the properties and lands that he's either acquired or traded for, which of the ones are English heritage sites today? Well, we've mentioned Middleham Castle, which, you know, he certainly knew as a child and as an adult owned again and lived at periodically. So Middleham is probably the one which is best known. But there's lots of other castles that he, you know, he owned and knew personally, spend time at. So we've got Barnard Castle, which is another you know, extremely important large castle that was favoured by Richard III and is close to Middleham. There's Penrith on the border on the northwest. Richard was made warden of the Marches, which is a military position charged with defence against Scotland on numerous occasions. And so Penrith was a key fortress. Likewise, Carlisle you know, similarly. And in 1478, after the execution of his brother Clarence, he also gained Richmond Castle. So these are all castles within English heritage that Richard knew, owned, spent time at, and can be visited today. And many of them, if you go to, you'll learn more about the detail and building work that Richard ordered personally. Out of the ones that you mentioned there, you mentioned he certainly lived at Middleham as a youth and as an adult. Did he also live at the other properties? 
Yes, I mean, Richard is his itinerary as Duke of Gloucester at this time, in other words, where he was staying. He was moving about a lot, as noblemen did. If you were Duke at this time, you had a very large household, which would often be hundreds of people strong. And so it was often impractical for them to stay in one location for any great length of time, because they'd simply exhaust all of the resources that were kept at castles. So he moved about. But what we can say with sort of more often with confidence is regards to sort of building works that Richard ordered. So he carried out extensive work at Middleham and Barnard Castle in particular, which were sort of aimed at bringing those castles up to contemporary standards through the introduction of high standards of comfort and airiness with just larger size to rooms and and so on, and larger fireplaces and larger windows, and basically civilising, in terms of contemporary standards, those castles. I mean, at Barnard Castle, for example, his personal symbol, which was the white boar, when he went to war, that would have marked him personally, and he gave symbols of the white boar to his followers. But that same white boar was carved into the stonework of a finely mullioned oriel window, so that can be seen at Barnard Castle. And at Middleham, he built a, a new great hall above the existing keep. So it's unlikely, of course, that he would have done that if he didn't intend to spend time there. So that can be said with certainty. And you know the reason why he did this is because castles, they had a military importance for sure, but they were also homes, administrative centres and judicial centres. And Richard received the money from their estates. So that's why they were incredibly important and why, therefore, he spent money on them. We speculatively dived into the psyche of Richard a little bit earlier with this idea about religion and the fact that perhaps he got a sense of importance that God was favouring him. Did he formalise his interest in religion in the North of England? Yes. As we've seen, Richard was a quite a prolific builder in terms of his secular buildings. But he also did have a you know, very large interest in religious establishments as well. In February 1478, he procured a royal licence to establish two colleges, one at Barnard Castle in Durham and the other at Middleham. So we shouldn't think of colleges in the modern term, necessarily, you know, as centres of education. These were more religious establishments that were popular among the nobility at this time. And they were established so that prayers could be made and songs could be sung, intercessory prayers for the souls of family members, and also often acted as personal and familial mausoleums where members of the family would be buried. So in connection to Richard, you know, the Earls of Warwick had recently done this at a church in Warwick. And so Richard clearly at this stage, remember he's still Duke of Gloucester and not King, is perhaps thinking about his own position after death, his own family and the celebration of his own own lineage. And he was quite involved in these establishments in setting them up. So he specified the number of priests, the saints who were to be honoured. So one of his particular favourite saints, St Ninian, a saint related to Scotland. And also he specified which members of the family were to receive prayers. So he was very involved and interested in these religious establishments. And the fact that they were destined for Barnard Castle and Middleham, again, suggests that these two sites in particular had a place in his mind and in his heart. Now let's move to the meat of uh, the story then, where Richard begins to get closer to holding the title of king. Now, 
how did he expand his power from the north of England into power in the south? It's likely that if Edward IV had lived longer and therefore had, when he died, Edward V was an adult, Richard would have remained happy as Duke of Gloucester and just you know, remained a power in the north and been a relatively small section of the history books. So it was really Edward IV's quite sudden death in 1483 that completely transforms the story of Richard III. Now, what happened immediately after Edward IV's death is that a council convened in London, um, headed sort of effectively by the Queen and her Woodville relatives, who decided effectively to try and minimise Richard's own role in the organisation of the kingdom following Edward IV's death. So remember, Edward V, his son, is still a minor and therefore cannot rule as an adult and therefore needs advisors and a council. And what would often happen is a Lord Protector would be appointed, which would normally be the king's closest adult male relative, which should have been Richard. However, the Woodvilles obviously didn't want this to happen, wanted to sort of retain power for themselves. But unfortunately for them, the Woodvilles were unpopular among some of Edward IV's other Yorkist followers, in particular Lord Hastings, who up to that point had been Richard's close friend. And so immediately following Edward IV's death, sent letters to Richard saying, come south in haste so that you can put forward your claim to be Lord Protector while Edward Edward V was still a minor. What happened is Richard did so and arranged with the Duke of Buckingham and a significant power in the west of the country to join him at Stony Stratford, where Edward V was being slowly conveyed you know, or taken to London by his one of his Woodville relatives. And there, quite unexpectedly, Richard launches a coup of his own and takes Edward V's Woodville relatives prisoner. Um, Goodness and, me. And all under the pretense of being loyal to Edward V, but sort of makes this story up that the Woodvilles are conspiring against Edward V and therefore uses that to take the Woodvilles into his custody um, wow. and also um, Edward V into his custody. So at this stage, Richard has effectively pulled off a bloodless coup where he's all of a sudden gained control of the king in person at this stage still professing his loyalty to the king or the new king Edward V, but has actually decapitated the Woodville leadership by acting suddenly and unexpectedly. That is some scheme, that is. We talk about the, uh, spoiler alert, the princes in the tower Mm -hmm. as being one of the key things that uh, Richard is supposedly responsible for, but this is even more sophisticated than that, isn't it? It is, yes. And where this comes from, obviously we haven't talked in great length about Edward IV and his own court, but the dissatisfaction among some members of the Yorkist affinity with the Woodvilles is quite strong. You know, there are different court factions and the Yorkist faction after Edward IV's death is no fan of the Woodvilles and at this stage sees Richard as a member of their own that can act against the Woodvilles. And so Richard is almost certainly tipped off about how the king is being moved and how the Woodvilles are trying to keep hold of power and realises that he needs to move quickly if he is to disrupt their plans and make sure that power actually goes to him. So technically that's the shortest battle in the Wars of the Roses really, isn't it? Even though there was 
No blood spilled and no weapons drawn, I presume. Well, um, well, very little. It's even more sort of sophisticated in the sense that when Richard and the Duke of Buckingham, his co-conspirator, first meet with the Woodvilles and Edward V's train at Stony Stratford, they actually spend the night with the Earl Rivers, who's who's one of the Woodville family. And that night they dine together, and we're told it's you know it was very cordial. But then clearly Buckingham and Richard know what's afoot, know what they're planning, spend, we're told, the evening talking to each other. And then in the morning, before anybody, you know, the Woodvilles realise what's happening, are arrested and are taken immediately to the north and Richard's castles at Pontefract, where they're then held. So it's a very sudden but almost bloodless coup. Yes, he's hoovering up rivals effectively, isn't he? And disposing of them into his various places. But were there any other rivals in his quest for power, apart from the Woodvilles? Well, Queen Elizabeth Woodville, who was obviously Edward IV's widow, was still in London, but realised that her support had disappeared and therefore takes her other children, so Richard, Duke of York, and her daughters, into sanctuary within the church where Richard is respectful of religion, as we saw, and so doesn't go after them. But initially, his actions are treated very positively by the Yorkist faction, who are happy to see the Woodvilles, as it were, deposed from power. But what happens quite quickly, and we're not exactly sure why, is Richard decides clearly to take the throne for himself. And this is this is the major turning point in this period of history. Now, it's not certain why he does so. There's a story that Bishop Stillington and another member of the clergy called Ralph Shah actually speak to Richard in private and declare not only that Edward IV himself was a bastard, in other words, not the true son of Richard, Duke of York, Um, Richard and Edward's father, but that he actually was married in secret prior to his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville to another woman called Eleanor Butler. Um, Oh, I see. And if this was the case, of course, you know, it's fundamental because that would not only make Edward IV illegitimate and therefore... Really illegitimate. <laughs> yes, not yeah, uh, yes. I mean, and, and there is a story that most historians today don't believe that he was the son of a an archer in Rouen and other things like that. But what's key about it is, if true, it would have made Edward illegitimate. But probably more importantly, at this stage, or certainly just as importantly, his sons illegitimate. If Edward was married in secret prior, obviously there was a and there still is laws against bigamy. So that would have made his children with Elizabeth Woodville, i.e., Edward V. And his brother Richard of York, the princes in the tower, would have made them illegitimate. And this would have made Richard III the next in line to the throne. Uh, so, so so it's possibly that, that that was going on in the background and that Richard believed it and therefore decided that he would make his own claims to the throne. So and, he made his he, he took advice and he made his beliefs that he'd formed reality. Then he stepped into that reality effectively. He did, but he had to move quickly and he had to do so largely in secret. And at one council meeting, which was attended by various bishops and also by his previous sort of friend and colleague, Lord Hastings, another coup took place where the bishops were arrested and Lord Hastings, either at the meeting or just following it, was taken out and summarily beheaded. 
So mm. there's more sort of skullduggery going on. And it's likely that took place because it was at that meeting where Richard made clear to that small council that he was going to the throne and there were serious objections. And so those people that like who objected, such as Hastings, had to be quickly eliminated before events could move forward. So Richard is definitely playing a very dangerous but clever game at this stage where he's conducting business behind the scenes in order to make sure that when he claims the throne, which he, he does, he goes to London, St. Paul's, and it's published, you know, his manifesto that the princes in the tower, as we call them now, are illegitimate. All of that happens in a very specific order where Richard eliminates the barriers before he makes those claims. Yes, by clandestine conduct and clever calculations, you could say that he has got all his ducks in a row. Yes. Anticipating that effectively he's going to have to hold court and say, these are the reasons. Yes, because he knows that most people are expecting Edward V, Edward IV's son, to become king. And so that he has to move very quickly before he loses control of events. So, yeah, so he's moving behind the scenes in order to achieve his ends. And he's got more brain power than Edward V because he's been on the planet longer, being older, obviously. He has that advantage as well. Um, And all the other advantages that he's accrued up until this point, lands, expertise, diplomacy, ruthless skullduggery, (laughs) um, winning in battle, etc., etc., and having this belief that God is on his side. Yes, and and you know, up until right at the last moment, for example, he still acts as if the coronation of Edward V is going to go ahead, and through this method, he also gains custody of the second prince, Richard, Duke of York, who is initially when Richard makes his way to London is is in sanctuary, but through promises, he induces Elizabeth Woodville, the old queen, to give up. Richard, Duke of York. So he's engineered this position where he eliminates those people who could stand in his way. He gains control of the princes, who are the you know the two most important boys you know in his way. Gains control of them, and then directs events so that he is in control. So that when he actually puts his claim forward, it's accepted. Yes, um, it's not challenged. It, it seems legitimate, effectively. Exactly, yes. yes. I mean, He's created an argument um, in case people were to argue. Yes, and, and certainly there is a degree of confusion at first. So at Calais, there's an English garrison at Calais at this time, and they actually, after they hear this news, they write to Richard saying, what should we do? Because we've already pledged allegiance to Edward V. And Richard writes back to them saying, well, this was because when you pledged allegiance to Edward V, you did so not knowing that they were effectively bastards and therefore your original oath is invalid. And most people at this stage accept it so that when Richard is crowned in July 1483, it's an event which is attended by almost all of the nobility at this stage. So there's no indication yet that they weren't loyal or that they all generally accepted Richard's actions, although the rest of his uh, reign wasn't to prove so straightforward. Okay, so that sort of gets us up to his crowning moment, shall we say. He reigned for two years, which isn't a long period of time, but you've just sort of slightly intimated that uh, he had some challenges during that period. So what were they? 
Well, initially, he made a progress throughout the kingdom, which was expected of a new king, that you would see and be seen by your new subjects. And so he travels through the Thames Valley up to Oxford and then through other important towns and to York, where he has his son made Prince of Wales at a fantastic ceremony at York Minster. So everything is apparently going well. However, quite quickly after his coronation, the opposition which has been wrong-footed or outmaneuvered by the speed and just unexpected nature of Richard's actions, begins slowly but shortly to coalesce. And what happens first is there is an attempt by members of Edward IV's own inner household, so the groom of his stirrup, which effectively is a member of the household who is involved with the horses, for example, and other members actually try to break the prince's who are being held at the Tower of London, out of captivity. And it's probably at this stage that Richard recognises that they are still a major threat and that while they are alive, they will continue to pose a major threat to his own reign. And so probably, although we can't be sure, that it is this point after their attempted rescue that they are killed. What's the consensus of historians about whether Richard was directly responsible? Or I suppose there is none. Everyone's debating it still. Well, they they are still debating it, yes. It's often said that Richard had no need to kill them because they were bastards. But, of course, arguably a lot of people in the country still didn't believe this or treated that claim with a huge degree of scepticism. Also, if they were allowed to become adults, they would potentially be huge threats to Richard's own reign and life. If they were able to gain their freedom, they would be a natural rallying point for Richard's enemies. Mm. And so Richard did have the motivation, in my opinion, and certainly had the opportunity because they were his prisoners in the Tower of London. Now, there are other possibilities. So it's possible that Richard's ally, the Duke of Buckingham, had them murdered. It's also possible that Henry VII, i.e. Henry Tudor, had them murdered later. But the main scholarly consensus, both today, as it was indeed in the Tudor period, was that Richard was probably the killer. Mm. When was news of their death then? Is that quite vague? It is, yes. Their deaths are not publicised, probably for obvious reasons. In, in, In modern parlance, the PR, the public relations if the princes were known to have died and Richard publicised it, the PR relations between him and his subjects would be disastrous. So he doesn't publish it. However, it becomes news that by the end of the year in 1483, it is presumed by contemporaries that the princes have died. So although we can't be sure of the date exactly and exactly who did it and how, it's likely that by the end of the year 1483 that they had been murdered. And the bones of two little boys were discovered in 1674 and are now buried at Westminster Abbey. And they were analysed at the beginning of the 20th century by a member of the Abbey and another scientist who concluded that they were about the right age. But of course, scientific method at that stage wasn't sufficient. So we can't necessarily say that those two bodies that were found at the Tower were necessarily the princes. But certainly in popular memory, those two bodies found at the Tower in 1674, have been associated with the princes who died at this time. I suppose some people might think, well, who else could they be? But um, maybe that's another one for another podcast. (laughs) But um, 
As we move now to the sort of uh, later stages of our story, we have the Battle of Bosworth, which is a key event in Richard's life and, spoiler alert, death. What were the key events, though, leading up to that battle? Because you've mentioned Henry Tudor, and he is the man who steps into the frame to face Richard at the Battle of Bosworth. So um, what are the key events up until this point? Yes, well, Henry Tudor had a claim to the earldom of Richmond, so was a major nobleman in his own right, and had been involved with other rebellions and other attempts on the throne. So one of the great rebellions that also happened in Richard's reign was Buckingham's Rebellion. So his former ally rebelled against him, and Tudor was meant to come and help in that, but that rebellion failed, and Buckingham was executed. But Henry Tudor cannily didn't land. He was on his way, had embarked, sailing to England, but then heard about the failure and just wisely went back to France. And during 1484, his position as a rival to Richard was greatly enhanced, particularly when he promised to marry Elizabeth of York, who was the Princess in the Tower's older sister, and therefore, after their death, the sort of natural claimant to the crown of England. And so when Henry promised to marry her, he became the natural alternative to Richard, particularly for the, all those Yorkists, the nobility, members of the gentry, who had become disillusioned with Richard's rule. And in particular, the supposed murder of the princes. He was the new mm. um, centre of allegiance. Henry was able to sort of launch a PR campaign effectively to advertise himself as the next person to inherit the throne. Yeah, exactly. Because Henry's own claim was very, very weak. In both his father and his mother's line, there were occasions of bastardy. He and his connection to the ruling house of Plantagenet through blood was, again, quite weak and stretched from back to John of Gaunt and his second marriage and the Beefert family. So his own claim was very weak, but simply by being an alternative to Richard and by promising to marry Elizabeth, he became the natural focal point for disaffected Yorkists. And so throughout 1484, it was known Henry Tudor would invade. And Richard did go about to try and make some attempts to counter this by having forces arrayed on the south coast. But in the end, in August 1485, Henry, with the support of the French crown, launched an attack which landed near Milford Haven in Wales. And from there, he made his way through Wales to Shrewsbury. The bulk of his army was made up with mercenaries provided him by the French crown. When Richard heard that Henry had landed, he was hunting at Nottingham and quickly mustered his own forces and the two met at Bosworth on the 22nd of August. The two men are quite similar in a way that they have engineered and almost artificially created a situation where they both have claims to the crown of England. Yes, in Henry in particular, his connections to the Lancastrians had made him a potential threat to the Yorkists and Edward IV. But because his own claim to the crown was so weak, his initial hope simply was that he would be allowed to return to England during Edward IV's reign and simply be allowed to reclaim his inheritance of the earldom of Richmond. But it was Richard's own usurpation, I think, that suddenly made him aware 
and also made his mother aware, Margaret Beefert, who was still in England and was pulling strings behind the scenes in his, on his behalf, made them aware that actually there was an opportunity to not only return to England and to be Richard's subject, but actually to make a claim for the throne on their own behalf. And the marriage to Elizabeth was definitely seen as the key factor in this. And certainly Elizabeth's marriage was a very hot political subject, particularly when Richard III's own wife, Anne Neville, and his son, Edward of Middleham, died in 1484, meaning that Richard no longer had any heirs of his own. So suddenly Richard is in a far more vulnerable situation. And there are even rumours that he planned to marry Elizabeth, who was his own niece himself. But whether these claims had any validity or not, he was persuaded by his counsellors against this course, principally because it was obviously it would be in an incestuous relationship. But yes. and but it was clearly considered a reality because if he had done so, that would have nullified Elizabeth's. Henry's interest in it, Elizabeth. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So we talk, when, when Henry apparently received news that this was on the cards, you know, he was incredibly despondent because of his own claim as it, or potential claim to the Yorkist affection via marrying Elizabeth suddenly um, looked less secure. So there's a whole series here where Richard is trying to repair the situation and retain his crown, whereas Henry is trying to use every claim available to him so that when he invaded, he would gain the maximum amount of support. Indeed, and I think at this point as well, Richard is on his way down and Henry is on his way up. It's almost like Richard, once he's crowned, that's his peak. And after that, things start turning against him. Yes, all his previous life and career, particularly in the 1470s, he had been in the position to direct what was happening around him. And obviously this reads its culmination when he was directing the affairs of state in the claiming of the crown. As soon as he becomes king, however, all of the impetus suddenly shifts and he becomes reactionary and is waiting for other people to act, waiting effectively for rebellions to take place. So he loses that ability to direct the course of his own affairs. Now, the battle itself, it's the Battle of Bosworth in Leicestershire in the Midlands, but do we know exactly where it took place? Well, traditionally, the battle was thought to have taken place on Ambien Hill, which was a place of rising ground. And that's where the Battlefield Visitor Centre is and so on. But more recent analysis of the battlefield and sort of battlefield archaeology has placed the battle more in the plain below the Ambien Hill. And Richard got to the battlefield first and so chose it and chose that site to be the battlefield. And it's in the medieval period, there were a degree of marshland there, which he probably thought would protect his own battle. But it transpired obviously differently when Richard, during the course of the battle, decided to attack personally, rode against Henry with the express aim of probably killing Henry on the battlefield, perhaps even in person. So Richard led a cavalry charge, which actually started off incredibly well. He personally, we're told, slew Henry's standard bearer and also another man, John Cheney, who we're told was a giant of a man, but Richard managed to kill him personally. But the attack bogged down and he was surrounded and cut off from the rest of his troops. And then at this crucial point, some troops under Lord Stanley, 
whose loyalties were questionable because despite the fact that he was in Richard's household and Richard actually had a, uh, his son, had taken his son hostage, was also the father-in-law of Henry Tudor. And at this decisive point, he threw his men against Richard. And uh. Richard was cut down on the battlefield and obviously lost his life. So that's the end of Richard. He's been cut down and we can imagine him perhaps being surrounded by men and horses as he breathes his final breaths. Can you tell us now about his burial place? Because where was he buried? Was he just left on the battlefield? Um, yes. So as you say, he's surrounded, incapacitated and killed on the battlefield quite brutally. He's stripped naked after death and humiliated. So one of the wounds that was found on his bones is actually a, a stab through his one of his buttocks. So you know, it's quite clearly that his body is not treated respectfully after death. And he's taken back to Leicester, slung over a horse, where his body is probably displayed for a few days. And then he is given a very hasty burial without a coffin in Greyfriars Church in Leicester. And it's only sort of 10 years later that Henry VII pays for a tomb. But the Greyfriars building where Richard is buried was dissolved in 1538 by Henry VIII. And so the of the grave of Richard is lost. Those buildings are largely gone. And a later legend developed that the bones of Richard were dug up and thrown into the river Saw, which runs through Leicester. So given that, it's probably not surprising that it takes so long for his uh, remains to be discovered. After all that you've described there then, Dickon, this um, very dishonourable death and this legend that surfaced about Richard's bones being thrown into the river... How did we then come to a point where his remains were discovered under a car park in Leicester? Yeah, I mean, it has to be I think, yeah, one of the most surprising and unusual stories in archaeology in the last decade or so. It happened because the story over the bones being thrown in the river had been, always been questioned by some. And so it was decided in 2012 in a joint project between certain members of the Richard III Society, Leicester University and Leicester County Council, to actually have an archaeological investigation on the site of the Greyfriars, which was known. And as we've probably all seen in the documentary, once they started to dig, dig down, quite quickly they found the east end of the church complex, which is, of course, where more important members of society you know, would be buried and came across the bones which were quickly identified as the probable bones of Richard III. And one of the key things that came out of that was this thing that we mentioned a little bit earlier, which was this physical defect of his, this scoliosis, this curvature of the spine. That was one of the key clues, wasn't it, that this was actually him? It was. I mean, prior to that, Richard's defects, which have been described by sort of the Tudor historians, Thomas Moore and others, as being hunchbacked and having a withered arm, had been dismissed by many historians as an attempt to blacken Richard's memory. You know, not only his character, but you know, his his he was so evil that even his he was also physically deformed, and it was so it was seen as a Tudor propaganda. But as soon as the skeleton was unearthed, it came clear that it was a, there was a curvature of the spine. And scoliosis is a medical condition that you know affects normally teenagers, but can develop from between 10 and 16, and would have had potentially or led to Richard having some of the characteristics that are described 
in the Tudor propaganda and certainly would have become clear once Richard was stripped following the Battle of Bosworth. And that was, of course, one of the main immediate clues that, in fact, this skeleton was indeed Richard III. So, obviously, Greyfriars was dissolved. It became a car park. His remains were then discovered through this archaeological dig, and it was decided that these were the remains of Richard III. What's happened to the grave since then? Well, Richard was quite famously, and on televised service, reburied in person in March 2015 at Leicester Cathedral, following a, uh, a legal battle about where he should be buried. That obviously is now done and dusted, and he has now been laid to rest at Leicester. And there's a visitor centre atop where you know the archaeological dig. Probably the more interesting in terms of what's happened since is the scientific investigation that happened, particularly on the remains and the skeleton. I mean, certainly, I mean, there's lots of that we could taken from that, such as you know, study of his DNA and so forth. But in terms of the Battle of Bosworth, what was clear was some of the wounds that were inflicted on Richard. So there was a puncture hole in the top of his skull, which was almost certainly inflicted with a type of dagger known as a rondel dagger, common at the time. And there were sort of cuts to his jaw and other cuts on some of the bones. And most significantly, there was a huge slice through the rear of his skull. It was almost certainly been fatal if he hadn't been killed already, that was inflicted by a halberd. So really incredibly brutal wounds that were inflicted to kill him. And then others that were inflicted after his death. And I think that was confirmation of exactly what happened at Bosworth and how brutal these battles were. So it couldn't have been anyone else, effectively? It's almost certain. All of the facts seem to match. So where he's buried matches what we know. and The scoliosis, the battlefield wounds, and also the investigations into his DNA matched descendants of the female line of the Yorkists. So all the pieces fit together to the point where it's overwhelmingly likely that the skeleton was Richard, and hence why he is buried in Leicester Cathedral and why he's got the tomb saying Richard III that you can see in the church. Yes, fantastic. It's such an amazing story. And of course, there are so many aspects to it, including this dastardly reputation of uh, Richard III. So how do historians studying the Tudor period, which is obviously the period directly after Richard, He bookends his own period and a new period starts. So how do historians now look at Richard's conduct? Well, it's obviously complicated by the fact that right from his own lifetime, Richard was, and the circumstances of his usurpation were controversial to say the least. And the contemporary accounts that exist, Dominic Mancini and the Crowland Chronicle and others, are critical. And these were amplified by Tudor historians such as Thomas More, And of course, history is written by the victors, and it served their purpose and the Tudor monarchy to blacken Richard's name. Just as importantly, it was self-evident to the Tudors that Richard was in the wrong. He had, after all, been killed at Bosworth, and his reign ended in defeat, which could be seen, at the time at least, as being God's judgment. And so he was written about in, in, in a very, very poor terms. And this was magnified then when we come to Shakespeare, who of course drew on and embellished these Tudor accounts. 
and turned Richard into a Machiavellian character in which the guilt of Richard is assumed from the start. You know, there's no question of his goodness or badness. He is simply evil. You know, right from the opening monologue in Richard III play, Richard, in fact, admits his diabolical nature. It's no secret. And this has shaped the popular opinion of Richard III to this day. And it's, in some cases, it's quite unfair. So we probably all all be familiar with Richard's lines in the play, you know, my kingdom for a horse. But this actually is directly contrary to a contemporary account of a soldier, a Portuguese mercenary on the battlefield at Bosworth, who reported that the king actually said that he would not yield a single step on the battlefield. And, and on that day, he would either die a king or win. So his image after his death was certainly blackened. And it's a case of modern historians to try and sift through some of this contrary information to try and analyse the actual truth of the events that took place. I think on that note, after a lot of sifting, it's probably best that we don't draw any conclusions for ourselves and just let our listeners decide what their view of uh, Richard III is and perhaps just leave it at that. Absolutely. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be finding out about the reclining and dining that went on at Lullingston Roman Villa in Kent. You're lying on one side, resting on one arm, using one hand to eat. Until then, thank you for listening and see you next time.